in three, two, one. Building good credit is an essential part of your financial planning. In fact, good credit is key to your future success with money. Whether you are a business professional, entrepreneur, or have a side gig, having and using credit appropriately and managing your finances is critical to your success. After all, credit is part of your financial power. To help us understand how to make credit work for us is author, speaker, and financial strategist, Natalie Nosette. Well, hi, Natalie. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, actually. Well, I'm, I'm, like, I'm really happy about the extensive research. Oh, well, good. Well, you know what? We've got a really good audience. Our audience is made up of business professionals, entrepreneurs, self-employed, people with side gigs. And we're always looking at ways to make ourselves better. And that's what Becoming Preferred is all about. Now, you're a financial strategist. You work with people on a personal level as well as businesses. And mm -hmm. you're the author of book. We're going to get into the, some of those details. But let's back up just a little bit and talk about how you got to where you're at. So I think we're back around 2013. I'm reading some of your history. And yeah. in 2013, you were going through some experiences. Let's start there. I know you were you're a University of Miami grad and you came out of school out of Florida. Let's talk about that migration, how you chose this as a particular subject, because it's not something you go, hey, I think I'm going to become a financial strategist and help businesses improve their credit or personal people yeah. with their, their credit. How'd you get there? Yeah. So I actually used to work at UM for some time. And around that time, around that period, I was just kind of transitioning out of working for UM and going on to my own entrepreneurship journey. Sure. And a little bit before that, pre-entrepreneurship, I was just a young individual trying to find her way into adulthood. My parents didn't really know much about personal finances. They really couldn't guide me or give me much insight into how to navigate that world. And I found myself in a situation where I needed a car to just get out of high school, get a Around, get to work. And I was denied a vehicle because I didn't have enough credit. So I get into college. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I get into college and I end up buying a car cash outright. Digging deep into what credit was, I get my first credit card solicited on campus. And then a couple of years later, they actually overturned, they created some laws, overturned the ability to solicit college students because you should be able to have income to be able to get credit cards. So most college students don't have an income to state. So why are you trying to solicit them? Right. right. Uh, so that kind of led to that bad credit journey because again, no guidance. I'm just kind of like, just like a newborn deer trying to get its feet through life, sure. trying to figure out what the heck I'm doing. And then fast forward a little bit, as I'm now becoming a little bit older and I'm navigating a little bit more financially, a friend and I had a conversation and she's like, this is around the time I actually worked at UM and I got paid once a month. And she's like, how are you surviving by getting paid once a month? Like, I, I could never do that. And I'm like, well, I have a budget. And this is the first time we're talking about budgeting. This is the first time we're talking about credit. And she's like, I need help. And from that one conversation, our entire friend group just became like this big, like, let's try to figure this out. What are we doing? And that's how the credit piece kind of came into fruition. And then one person told another person, another person told another person. And by the time the six to eight month mark had rolled around. I had gotten so inundated with people requesting credit services that I end up creating a full-time business with it. That's awesome. That's incredible. And what's yeah. interesting is here you are 21, you're going to school, you need 
get a car. We all need those things. And yeah. they don't teach these strategies in school. They teach us things in order to work for organizations and companies, but they don't teach us strategies for financial success or to get on our feet. And so we end up right. learning based on what we've modeled. And I know in your book, you talk about it. You dedicate right. the book to your mom and how you broke the mold because you had generational, I don't want to say poverty, but how would you describe that? Absolutely poverty. We, we were raised in abject poverty. Secondhand clothes, didn't know where food was coming from. Right relied on the system. Like there was just, it was poverty. That's really what that was. And as we kind of progress through the interview, you'll kind of get an understanding of my understanding of what it is now, but understanding what it was back then was a function of just understanding what this system is and being able to leverage it, understanding what it is and being able to take advantage of it. Because a lot of people complain about what the system is and how it's broken and how it doesn't work when we should be focusing on, okay, well, yes, it is broken. But how do I take advantage of it instead of, right. and, and while we're taking advantage of it, understanding that at some point we do need to do something about it because it is not working. We shouldn't stay there no, or whatever there is. Not an excuse. I mean, it's not fair. It's not a fair system. That's for sure. No. But what you're saying is we can learn to legitimately game the system and stack the deck in our favor. Absolutely. And that's what your book is about. Now your book is entitled Converted. And I was curious how that name came to be. I know the story of how you got there, but for our listeners, it's an interesting take on the word because yeah. when we think of converted, we usually think it's maybe I'm converted to a new faith. Maybe I converted yeah. to a new stream of doing things. How did you come up with the name and why does it apply to what you're doing? No, that's exactly why I picked that name because I wanted to point out the fact that no matter where you are in your journey, financial journey, spiritual journey, emotional journey, fitness journey, you are moving from states. So the state of where you are to the state of where you want to be. And it's a conversion process, right? Like the same way we convert religions, you move from a belief, one belief to another, you can move from poor credit, you can convert from having poor credit to having better credit, or you can convert from having no money to having a lot of money. There's like always a state of conversion and just moving states. What conversion is? Yeah. I like the reference to it, but it does make sense that we do that. Yeah. And we'll get into some of the elements of the book, but you take some of the most privileged financial strategies and make them accessible to those with the least amount of financial education in your book. So why is it important for you to make sure this information is accessible to people of all walks of life? Right. So in my years of practice now, I realized that it doesn't matter really where you come from and who you are. It still surprises me that even with the advancement of technology or things like Google, people really don't understand like the basic and fundamentals of a financial system and even things like credit. And it has such a huge impact and huge implications on our lives yeah, that if we don't understand it, you are quite literally walking around life blind. And not only that, but you end up putting yourself in a financial situation where you're going to be worse off and paying more money for your ignorance, because that's what ends up happening when you don't understand the financial systems. Like interest is not in your interest. If you don't understand how it works, you're going to end up paying for more over time. Having poor credit actually costs you more over time. So those little things do compound, they add up. And that's why I'm so invested in like people knowing these things and having the book streamlined and kind of structured the way it is so that it's very simple English, very simple information. It's only what you need to know so that you get to the point 
get to the information and make informed decisions so that you're really not walking through life uninformed and not empowered to make decisions will live with you for as long as you have a social security number. As long as you have those nine digits attached to your name until the day you die, these three numbers are going to follow you everywhere you go. Right. You cannot make a financial decision or create a loan application, buy a home, buy a car, open a business, nothing without it. Nothing can be done without it. So you have to know. Right. Well, I love the point you make. Interest is not in your interest and compound interest is definitely not in your interest unless you're actually using it from a savings perspective. Right. Right. But, and you give examples in your book, like you can buy a home for $350,000 and time you get done paying that 30 years later, you've paid 700,000 or 800,000. And if you have poor credit, those extra points or two, like people bought it in the last two years during the pandemic, people were buying homes with cheap interest rates. Well, now their interest rates are starting to rise because they had variable mortgages thinking, Hey, this is going to last this way forever and one or two extra points knocks them out of the housing market and then they end up having to get their homes. People don't realize, for instance, you can get a, say a 25-year mortgage, but if you pay it twice a month, if you pay every two weeks, you can knock that baby down to like 18 years and without changing your payment, you've just made frequency of payment. And so they're ignorant to the tools that are out there and we just don't have an understanding of money and the value of money and really what it means. You cover a lot of that territory in your book and give those details. Now, let me ask you this question. How did becoming a mother to a daughter influence your motivation for achieving financial freedom and helping other mothers do the same? Yeah. I think being a parent just puts you into this gear that you don't know you have. Once I found out I was pregnant, I was just like, okay, so like, it's one thing to live for yourself and know that you have to just figure things out for yourself. But then now you're responsible for this entire human being that you have to pass this information along to. Right. So it definitely put me in a position where I'm like, how do I now leave something for her that is going to put her in position and give her the advantages that I didn't have? growing up. I don't want her to be me 20 years from now saying my mom didn't teach me this or I didn't know this or I should have this. And of course, there are going to be things I don't know because we're in different generations. We're different. We're going to be in different points of life. But these things, as long as they exist, like if these financial systems still exist, this is kind of the mind frame that I had. So my friends joke, they're like, you left postpartum with a book. And I'm like, yeah, because I need to leave this for my kid. Well, so that's how she motivated me to kind of get this done. My parents were immigrants. They landed from England in Canada and had a nickel to their names, but they had jobs to come to and started working. So I had to build up everything. So then we learned from them and the value of working hard. So I learned how to be working at 10 years old. I was working and earning in school and paying attention. And then we give to our kids. We want them to have better lives than we do. And we taught our kids the value of money because people have a money motto. They just don't realize they're not, they're not conscious of it at all. Right. What does money mean to you? That's interesting. I have a little foo-foo like spiritual approach to money. Sure. For me, it's really the energetic exchange of value. That's really what it is. I agree. We'll see that more and more as our financial system continues to change and it's going through a major energetic shift right now. And we're starting to see it with like SVB. We're starting to see it with like Credit Suisse as of like today. There was such a big culmination of energy and that was mismanaged and mishandled, not really accounted for. And because of that, it's being forced to change, right? And now we're moving more towards like a digital approach, which is going to happen ultimately. And I know this is going to age well. Mark my words. So because of that, I know the value of money is going to be seen very different as we start to navigate this new landscape. So how do we exchange value now based on this new landscape? Right. How is value going to be calculated? How are we going to quantify value? And that's really what money is. If you say 
that Rode mic costs $20, but it brings you the quality that you need for 100 episodes, then the value in it is the cost over the 20 episodes of the value that it brought you to bring it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I know that's an area that you're working on because I believe in a value economy where we see failures in it is, well, perfect example. You saw Tesla stock up at the 700 and 800, now it's, you know, the high 100s. Well, what happened? Well, it was highly valued over all the automakers put together. Well, we all know that common sense tells us that's not true. They only put out, say, a quarter of a million vehicles compared to millions, whatever. We've seen it in the crypto world. I think digital's coming and it's in, but you've seen a couple of failures in the crypto. You see banks, it's all about the value. We've just recently had a couple of bank collapses because the banks got the money at low interest, then they bought low interest bonds and now can't pay them, you know, when the prices change. And so value is always a perception issue. And we'll talk about that because I think that's going to be an important element of value as well. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Natalie Noisette. When people get stuck in the interest trap and you called about interest is not in their interest, they might think that the answer is to work harder, but that gets you just so far. Why should people focus on working smarter, not harder? Because there's actually money to be made now with credit cards. You can get rewarded for almost everything. There are credit cards that reward you in crypto. There are credit cards that reward you in investments. There are credit cards that reward you in gas, food, mileage, money. So if you understand how to like game the system as far as credit cards are concerned, and when I say game the system, I'm not suggesting anything illegal. I'm actually not cheating. You're not cheating. You're stacking your deck. You're learning how to play the game. Right. Exactly. So when you learn how to play that game, for example, I have one card that pays me in cash the total of $1,200 a year and I pay zero in interest. So if I didn't do that and if I didn't pay my balances how I'm supposed to, I would actually probably end up paying them $1,200 a year or more if I carried a balance. So the goal is just to help it build your credit so that you can continue to maintain confidence and trust and help them assess their risk of having that relationship with you, but then also to continue to reap the benefits of working with them. Yeah, it's learning that system for sure. And there's certain cards, like I'll play the game too, where they might offer me a credit card with zero interest for a year. Mm -hmm. And I've got decent credit. I've always taken care of my responsibilities that way. So they'll give me a big amount for 0%. Well, I always take advantage. It might cost me 1%, but then I use that in 
work, an operations point of view, and then just pay it back yeah. with another one that someone else is getting. So I'm borrowing my right. money at zero or 1% fee, which is good. But you do have some good strategies where you pay and you get the credit card paying for you. And we'll talk about how people can build up things because I know you have a couple of good tools that you use on that basis as well. It's interesting you say about, you called it spiritual or energy. I think it's just physics. Like to me, money, it means freedom. That's all it really means to me. Yeah. It allows me right. to do what I want to do when I want to do it. But it's an exchange of energy when you die of it's going with us right and we only have it because back in the day i would trade you some fish for some of your bread and we got started with coins the roman empire and we could then travel and sell our goods so it's an exchange of value as you say try buying fancy art these days or a banksy picture and man you start seeing millions going out for something value is in the eyes of the beholder right so right. anything you can do to generate revenue and build wealth but i think it's building it for the right thing so when trying to build wealth what's more important revenue building activities or cost saving initiatives or are they both equally important i think they work in tandem for sure yeah it's interesting because a lot of my work now with businesses has to do with bottom line profiting and we're always juggling those two things there's really never a time where we're not looking at the ratio of expenses to income and it's interesting that you ask that because just thinking about it now, I'm never more focused on just bringing more money in and not worried about expenses. I'm always making sure that even with more money, the expenses don't move percentage wise. Or if the expenses are moving, we're looking at income moving in proportion to the income changes. For example, the more money you make in some instances, the more your expenses might move up. But we're making sure that's incremental, not substantial. So I think they move in tandem for sure. Yeah, and we see that a lot. You make $100,000 a year, you spend 110. You know, you make 150, you're spending 175. People go beyond their means and their costs where if you're focused on both of those things and it applies to their business. I've been a pilot for 40 years. And if you use the analogy of an airplane, the engine is what gets everything going, but the fuel is the money, right? The cash flow. And what happens yeah. is if you have a single engine prop going, you're going to get certain lift. And then as you need to add on crew or personnel or people, which is typically your biggest expense is your payroll, in a small yeah. business, all of a sudden it starts to bloat. It starts to get fatter and the body mm -hmm. of the plane. So now I need another engine and now I yeah. need more fuel. And so what you're saying is keeping that in proportion so that we can keep in flight. Airplane doesn't stall and crash, which most businesses yeah. do, right? Like I saw one stat the other day that said only 35% of business startups are successful in five years. That's terrible odds. That's 65% of the people are crashing and burning, right? Well, you got better odds in Las Vegas. And so this is why people start businesses, then they go out of business, and then they have to go get second jobs to pay off the line of credit that they used to start their business. Which is why credit kind of matters. Because if you're looking at capitalization, right? Or cash flow is one of the reasons why your business is not successful or kind of keeping money in the door. Right. There's going to be periods where you might not be capitalized. Having that line of credit to kind of buffer that period, but then also having data to know when those periods would come is really helpful so that you can kind of spread that over time. So you know, okay, during May or September, we have lows or lulls, right? right? So maybe we need to push new incentives or create a new initiative around this time to re-engage our consumers. That's kind of where my job comes in. But then also, if that does not work because nothing is 100% guaranteed, you have a line of credit that will help you cushion that period of time until June, July, August comes around and everyone's re-engaged or whatever the case may be. So you don't have to fail. You just have to strategize instead. And paying attention to it 
and setting that roadmap and making sure you're not too overly optimistic with it. As a professional speaker, when the pandemic hit, I remember in one week, everything canceled for the whole year. And we have a team and I I cried for a week, seriously. Like, it was like, are you kidding? And well, it was was like everything you worked for. My business was recession proof, but it wasn't pandemic proof. No, right. Who who saw that coming, right? But thank goodness for lines of credit. And then we, Mm -hmm. and we took advantage of PPP. We payroll, we kept everybody. And our Mm -hmm. government did a good job of that and creating programs for us to do that. And that helped us out. And it helped out a lot of business as well. And thank goodness for that. But it's having that as a secure light so we can go through those hard times. And so I think that's important. Let's talk about the business and the value, because I know this is an area you're moving to and you've converted the business version of that, that you're working with clients as well. Some people struggle and business owners, entrepreneurs, people with side gigs of knowing how much to charge for their goods or services. In other words, they don't know their worth, or maybe they feel guilty for being compensated for valuable work, which is generally a problem for some people because they just don't know how much to charge. How much should I charge for this? And they want to be too cheap. Is there what advice do you have for our listeners that are maybe constantly underselling themselves? That's a great question. One, I've actually spent a month talking about pricing or speaking about pricing, and we did a deep dive into it and we've drawn a couple of conclusions. One is that pricing is a function of your own self-worth and the ideas about what you believe you should be charging. So if there is a discrepancy between what you charge and your ability to maintain business or keep your doors open, maybe you need to look inside. Therapist or maybe a really good reflective session, I'm not really sure, but whatever (laughs) can help you unpack what's going on inside and why you're not able to charge what you need to charge to bring that value, that would be one thing. Another thing is a lot of business owners do not take the time to conduct the exercise of actually looking at their finances and going through their actual product offering. Like how does your product actually broken down? So let's say you have a podcast, for example, look at all of your expenses and break those every single step down, down to the administrative, who's going to be doing the post-production, how much does everything cost? And if you have, for example, an offering and you know that you want to keep promoting the offering, or if you have a sponsor that wants to work with you, you'll know how much to charge the sponsor and you can set the price based on how much it costs to produce a podcast for one month based on your cost, and then you can mark it up from there. And then you also use industry numbers. What are standards? You can use that information if you have an issue with maybe an internal issue, but you can maybe use other metrics to help put that information together. And then the third and final thing would be poll people, poll other people, or play around with the prices. Because what you'll find is, and I've had this experience, it's interesting because people will pay, if people are not complaining about your prices, you're too low. It's too low. Right. So mark it up, keep marking it up. You'll be surprised. People will continue to pay. And then once you get to the point where people are just like, "Mm, I don't know, this is a little too much, a little too high. Maybe you've, you've kind of just hit the sweet spot because your perception of value and their perception of value, very different. You know what you bring, but them, they're getting the problem solved. Right. So they know how much it's going to be for them to get that problem solved. So keep playing around with the prices. Yeah. Pricing is an interesting one. I work on that one a lot. Love your thoughts. On this, I always use the customer's currency when I'm referencing it. So let's say you made bicycles and you produce bikes. I'm going to find out how many bikes you do, what your bikes mm-hmm. are worth. And when I promote my services to you, there's going to be a number to it. So let's just say it was $10,000, whatever the service was going to be. I would then come mm-hmm. in and just say, well, Natalie, that means 
an extra 50 bikes. We'll get you an extra 100 bikes. We'll get you an extra. And I use the currency of the customer. So in my world, we call what I do gigs, right? Speakers, we call them gigs. And we just want to be musicians, I think. And But we get to do this for a living. So, hey, I want to go buy a new motorcycle. It's only X number of gigs. So I've reduced it to that ridiculous, right? All by using the currency of the customer. If you can, if you can reference it. And yeah. yeah, no, that's great. That's a great way to frame it from a sales point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So value is all about perception, but it's easier to come down or bundle because at the end of the day, there can only be one price leader. Let me ask you this. Can you explain to me the difference between a poverty mindset and a wealth mindset? Because you've lived both of them. Yeah. So what I'm starting to learn is that it has a lot to do with complaining. And there's nothing wrong with complaining for the most part. But what I'm finding is that when I was in my most poor state as an adult, right? And I'm not speaking for people who can't really fend for themselves. These are people who I'm an adult, I'm able-bodied, I'm able to take care of myself. I'm an independent adult. I, if I take accountability for myself, I quit complaining. I understand my limitations because I do have them. I don't blame. I remove the guilt. I remove the shame. I forgive myself for what I didn't know. And I try to make up for any gaps in information. I ask questions. I try to problem solve. If I move towards, I find myself more in my wealth and I find myself more in my bag. When I do the opposite, nothing happens. If I complain, if I moat, if I continue to blame my mom for not telling me this, nothing happens. No energy moves. Like it just kind of keeps perpetuating. Keeps you stuck. Keeps you stuck. Keeps you stuck. So I definitely kind of shifted my thinking around, okay, this is my problem. How do I solve it? And then how do I profit? Because someone else has this problem. I can keep complaining about it or I can solve it and then I can profit because every single interaction, every business you engage with, every product you buy is a problem that is being solved at a profit. That's it. Interesting. That is that as well. Yeah. No, there's a value bomb in there for sure. And what I hear you saying is, hey, if I point the finger externally, I lose control. Oh, poor me. Poor me. I'm a victim of the system. Dang it. You know, and I can complain. If I say, hey, you know what? I own this. I screwed up. My bad. I didn't know the rules. Now I know the rules. And identifying the problem is the first step to solving the problem, as you say. So it's going through it. How do we solve it? And and there's lots of ways to solve it. And your book is rich and it's not a lot of fluffy stuff in there. It's pure tactics. And you actually have the examples the letters, the samples, because you've built it and you've done this numerous times for your clients as well. So like you say, I think by taking ownership, you empower yourself. That's what you're saying, right? Yes, for sure. Good. Well, that makes sense for the mindset. Do you find that the same strategies apply for personal finances and business finances or what are the similarities? Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting because I I started out in the personal finance space and we ultimately evolved into working with businesses. I really don't even know when that transition happened, but here we are. Right. And what I've learned is that a lot of business owners get to a certain point where they get stuck right. and it's because they don't address a lot of the personal stuff and they think, oh, we're just going to get a bunch of revenue and this is going to solve all of our problems. Problems, and I'm like, no, if you don't address the personal things, they bleed into the business things. So definitely addressing, even if it's not your personal credit, let's say mindset around money or any guilt or shame you have around charging enough, that's going to bleed into your business. Or if you don't have the tenacity to be able or discipline to be able to work for yourself, that's kind of going to bleed into your business. It's funny. People talk about like, oh, nine to five, nine to five. But if you don't have the discipline to show up at work, for your regular job, now that you're not clocking in for your business, 
and you're now having to put in more hours, how are you going to do that? There's no one looking over your shoulder. There's someone looking over your shoulder then. There's no one looking over your shoulder now. So how is that going to translate? So those things, if you're not able to kind of keep those checks and balances in place at that time, I feel like sometimes, not always, sometimes some entrepreneurs, they get really driven by being independent and more alone and kind of going into their own vision and leaning into their own vision. But sometimes I find whenever those personal issues are not addressed, you'll see them seep Mm. into the business and it becomes an issue. Yeah. Their personal habits leak into their professional or business ones. If I suck at managing my finances and my credit on a personal level, it's certainly not going to get better. It's going to become more complex in a professional or a business sense. Bigger business, bigger problems. And the more money you make, the more problems you'll have. Right. Yeah. The two definitely go hand in hand. So when someone say finds themselves in a position of being broke or in debt or any kind of financial loss or setback, because it can happen at any time, like people don't realize luck's a lot to do. You know, if you're in the right place at the right time, I was in the video business in the eighties and it took off. It, It was lucky. I wrote a book. It became a bestseller. It took off. My mom bought a lot of them, but it's luck. It's timing. But we always think we're smarter than we probably are. But when they find themselves in that position of financial loss or setback, what words of hope do you have for them? What strategies do you have for them to move them out of that funk and get them on the path to a a healthier path financially? Yeah, just... I know this is going to sound so cliche, but you have to kind of remember who you are. That's really what it comes down to because life really does happen. But if you know that you're someone that's determined and you've gone down that path before and you've been successful before, think about who you were at your best and that's who you are. You have that ability to be your best. So lean into that. You don't have to repeat the same steps because you might end up back at that situation, right? But remember those great qualities about who you are and led you to those successes. Lean into those and continue to skill stack and remember that lesson that you learned so you don't repeat it, yeah. but skill <laughs> stack that yeah, so that you can, yeah, sorry. You know. Yeah, no, we don't always do that. When we're in our youth, we might rack up a credit card and they give us all this free money and then we pay it off and then we rack it up again. And it's like, yeah. we, we don't learn our lesson, right? So be yourself, remember who you are, will yeah. be the key to it. Sure, and that's our personal financial resiliency, if you will. Yeah. Let's say, so everything starts even on a professional level with our credit from a personal level. And if we yeah. think of it like in terms of working out or exercise, as a pilot, I get a flight medical every year and I get yeah. all my blood tests done and I get all the numbers and I get to look at everything. So if my blood pressure is high, I know what to do about it. If my mm-hmm. weight's too high, I know what to do about it. I know right. cholesterol level, I know what to do about it. I know how to fix. But when it comes to our financial health, a lot of people don't know what to do. And so one right. of the first steps you teach is get your exam, get your numbers, get your diagnosis, take a look at it. And I know it started for you. You're sitting in a car and spend hours yeah. doing your homework, hours. right? So what's the first step for people looking at their personal financial health and where do they go from there? Yeah, if you just, first thing to do is just pull up your credit report. Take a look. Try and make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just try to make sense of it. And and it doesn't matter what's on there. Like look at it very mechanically, like a mechanic looking under a hood. Don't feel any way about it. Don't worry about whatever feelings come up for now. Like I'm not telling you to not worry, not (laughs) feel. Don't become a robot. I'm saying just push them away for now and just look at the numbers very mechanically and just try to figure out what's going on there. Try to make sense of things and see what comes up as far as questions, write them down. What is this? Do I understand this? Do I know what this is? And then once you go from there, I think if you can't find anything online, maybe seek help depending on your finances and how soon you can get things done. A counselor 
could be an option. If you don't have the funds right now, that's okay. There are a bunch of organizations and services that offer credit counseling for free. Matter of fact, a lot of credit cards now that build credit and resources, if if you're an entrepreneur, I mentioned some of them in the book that's out the 26th of March. There is a credit company that helps you rebuild your credit. And they also offer credit counseling services as an extension of one of their membership programs. So if you have questions about what's on your report, you can just call them and ask for, as a perk. You can build your credit and get counseling at the same time, right. right? You don't have to be lost in the world, but just look at your report as the first point of contact. And then from there, start to break down what needs to be done. Okay, this is hurting me. That's hurting me. How do I address this? Do I need to address this? Do I want to address this? Do I have the funds to address this? And then you can decide, make the decision about when or where to make the address. And then you can start to see your credit begin to approve as you add resources and go from there. Yeah. So that form of strategy, most people start with their FICO score and they're taking light and the banks are always offering that. In chapter three of your book, you talk about the down low of FICO. Tell our Mm -hmm. listeners kind of in that short version What's that about and how do they get that? Yeah, so FICO is an algorithm that kind of just gives you a snapshot of your history over the years that you've had credit. Right. Um, credit typically, depending on the nature of the account, seven to 10 years, if your account was still open and active, it will be the life of the account. FICO is the most accurate scoring model that there is. There are different models, but you always want to use the FICO model. So Experian.com and MyFICO are probably the places that you'll find the most accurate ones. Right. You go on something like Credit Karma, you'll see something called Advantage Score. It's not going to give you the most accurate one because you have to pay for this information. So in order for it to be free to you, they're going to use the free score, those free models. Pay for a membership, even if you're just trying to fix your credit now, for now. And then if you can't afford it, that's okay too. My annual credit report They are supposed to give you one free report per the government every single year. So you can get that report online for free and that you can use it as your baseline information. And every time there's an update made on your report, they will send you a brand new report. So you can kind of continue to monitor from there that way. Yeah. And this is something I would really advise our listeners is don't try this yourself. Your book, in my mind, is a roadmap and because there's booby traps because they've set the game. You're going to play by their rules and they've set the games. And there's some loopholes on which if all of a sudden I have a dispute issue, you talk about the dispute process in chapter four of your book and chapter five is all about the details devils in the details they have to respond to you and your inquiries within 30 days but they have stalling tactics and techniques in which to stall you out and in your book you lay that out you call it chapter seven is make them work for it Mm -hmm. um give us a couple of examples of how you you put the onus on them but what you can do if you are in a dispute process things you can do for instance one of their loopholes is hey how do we know it's you we want to really double verify you or whatever right and so you can send in your driver's license you can send in copies of utility bills. Other loopholes that they try and take advantage of you with? Yeah, sure. So there's one thing that they try to do is that if you ask for information to be verified, as far as like a derogatory mark on your credit report, if they cannot substantiate the information with with the data that was given to them, then what they'll do is they'll try to verify it through other channels. And what you're going to ask for is called a data suppression. The data suppression is other bureaus that are outside of the big three that we know, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. There are a ton of them. I listed maybe six or seven, but there's over 30. And what the main ones are the ones that you're going to ask for data suppression for. They can last anywhere from five to seven years. You can take the data suppression off whenever you're ready to be done with the repair process. And that way, the bureaus 
can't request data from them to try to verify your information. They actually have to work to furnish the information that you're asking for. And if they can't, then they have to remove the account that's hurting you. Have you seen credit reports that are just, hey, I can't help you here. You're done. You're toast. Or what are the fundamentals that have to be in place for it to be able to be repaired and approved for somebody who wants to improve it on a personal or professional level? Yeah, so there are a few people who are what I call credit bandits. <laughs> They'll intentionally let accounts go default and try to repair it and go back and forth about it. There are certain things that I can spot that will let me know that that's what they're trying to do. And I will choose to not work with them because they're trying to, that's kind of illegal. You're trying to steal from these companies. And I can tell and I know that, so I won't work with them. So in the dispute process, when you're disputing a claim, there there is a process and what people should look yeah. at. So the question I have is, do you ever come across credit reports that are just total losses and write-offs that, hey, you shouldn't even be going down this road, or I can't help you? The only ones that I really can't help other than like the credit bandit is maybe someone who has more debt than they can manage. Mm -hmm. I would probably have them consolidate all of their debt first, if that's an option that they're willing to go about. And if not, or they don't have the funds to maybe try to negotiate some of their debts down and get their debts at a discount, then I probably can't help them. If they know that the debts are theirs and they don't have the funds to negotiate them down, then that's probably the only time I can't. Otherwise, if they can and they have the funds, we can move forward. With them, you can yeah. fix it. Is there life after chapter 11 or after personal bankruptcy? The day after you can start rebuilding. So, and there are tactics to that. I remember, you know, I'm an immigrant to the United States and I remember coming down, I had good Canadian credit, but I didn't have any American credit. And so I thought, well, how am I going to do this? And I actually negotiated with the bank. Initially, my first move was to go in and say, okay, fine, here's some money. Give me a credit card against that money, like a thousand dollars. Give me a credit card for a thousand dollars. You can hold the money. And then I thought, okay, maybe $2,500. And the bank said, sure. But then I got them to go and check my Canadian credit. And I had to go through a bunch of hoops to get them to go do that. And then they approved it and automatically gave me a good card. And they're constantly trying to give you new limits, do those types yeah. of things. And you talk about the dangers of that because there is a lot of traps in here. And you nail it out in your 12 chapters of your book. It's a step-by-step. -step. It's really a playbook. And so if people want to improve their credit, whether they've gone through financial hardship or not, most people can improve their credit score significantly in a quick period of time, provided they take action on it. You're going to buy a house next year. Don't wait a month before you're going to go apply for a mortgage. You counsel mm -hmm. people, get on it now. Or what's yeah. the shortest time window? Is it pretty easy to level up scores significantly in a short period of time? Yeah, for sure. But it, it really depends on what's on the report. So if you have a ton of derogatory marks, then it might take anywhere from like six months to a year. Sometimes I've seen upwards of two years, but then it also depends on how quickly you can pay them down. Because if you have the funds, like a huge cash infusion of just let's get this at a discount and let's take care of this, let's remove it from the report, then you can do that in six months. But if you don't, then, and you want to go through the dispute process and you want to verify that all the information is being reported accurately, that can take an additional six months. So it really depends. But if there really isn't too much going on in the report and you want to purchase a home and you have the income and your debt to income ratio is low and, you know, all the factors are working for you, this could be done in three to six months. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now, credit scores, there's different ranges. So if, let's say you're mid 700s. Do you need to fix it? Because I know, I think it goes up to 800 or 850 or something. Yeah. Like that. But if you've got a credit score to say 740, 750, 730, is there any need to fix that? Like you're good to go? Unless you have something that's derogatory that's reporting against you, I wouldn't touch it because you're pretty much 
a prime credit right. <laughs> client. Well, it's a yeah, risk you're... thing, right? It's really about trust and risk. And yeah. you talk about that. It's how much can we trust you? And if you've got yeah. a good payment, and obviously when you're older, a little more mature, it's a little easier than when you're 21 because you've got a track record, right? Mm -hmm. Last question I have for you, boy, time flies when we're having fun. Right. So is there a difference between good debt and bad debt? Right. So any deductible interest is always a good debt, right? So life insurance is one, like I've deducted, like I've taken a loan out against my policy, but if I were to die or if there was a death, they would just deduct it from the death benefit. Yeah, the proceeds. Or for example, my investments, I have a Charles Schwab's account that I can take out a loan against the value of my investments. And then if, for example, I were to default on that loan, they would just take it against the value of my stock. It's not like I'm actually having to pay for the loan itself. So any interest where you can kind of like deduct the value of it from there, those are always great debts because you're not necessarily like on the line for it. And it has nothing, no rapport with my credit report whatsoever. No one's coming after me for that debt. No one's looking for it. It's not going to report to my credit report. And it's great that way. Well, it's interesting you even say that. Banks will lend up to 75% money using their own stock as collateral. Yeah. and taking it so you can actually buy their stock and then borrow it back and get the dividends. And you got a three, 4% dividend and you're borrowing at prime because it's their own stock and they're collateralizing it. So again, lots of strategies on what people can do to use debt or credit to make money. And this is why people use it. In the old days, it was usury. I remember the days of 18%. I had an 18% mortgage on my first house in the early eighties. And I had a second at 21%. Basically it was buying a house like a credit card, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You just never pay it off, right? Right. And oh. of course, we know that that doesn't go anywhere. Let's talk about what's next for you. You've got another project. You've got a business version of Converted coming up. Tell us about it. Yeah. So March 26th, the business edition of Converted launched, available everywhere books can be sold, libraries, bookstores, all those good places. So I'm making a case for entrepreneurs to really get their personal finances in order. For the last, I want to say four years, I've been preaching that credit is going to be taking a turn and we're seeing the results of it now. So whenever we have like these bank changes, these big financial institutional changes, we see lending requirements change. We saw it in 2008 with the mortgages and we are going to see it happen again. So what I'm anticipating is that if you do not have your credit in order now, it's going to be harder and the requirements for lending are going to be more stringent in the future. So I think people should really focus on improving their credit. The algorithms are going to be definitely looking for different data points to be determining risk and trust now. So definitely improve your credit, get that cushion that you need for your business as far as the capitalization and start working on those things now before all those pieces are set in place for sure. So that book, March 26th of 2023. Nice. Congratulations. And if people mm -hmm. want to get hold of you and work with you on a personal or a professional level, where's the best place for them? Yeah. So actually we host the Mental Money Podcast. So Mental Money Pod or Mental Money Podcast, anywhere where, where you're online socials, that's where you can find me. And I know you're a big proponent and all over Instagram too. Check out your Instagram stories as well well and page because I know you give good content and like mm -hmm. I say your podcast mentalmoneypodcast.com and people can find you up on LinkedIn and talk to you about it and you'll point them in the right direction even if you can't help them. Natalie this was certainly a pleasure thank you for sharing your time with us and our listeners on what we can do to build our credit how to use it wisely on a personal and professional level so thank you for being our guest. Yeah thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Bess Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.